In the years leading up to the start of the Second World War, Britain's empire extended to every continent on Earth. As such, British forces fought in every theatre of the conflict alongside troops raised from the nations that made up the empire and allied powers such as the United States, France and the Soviet Union. The end of the war sparked the end of the empire which transformed into the Commonwealth, as it's known today, where the British monarchy serves only a ceremonial role in the governing of member states, and thus the Second World War was essentially the swan song for British imperial power. While Britain had the weapons and technology with which its forces could utilize against the Axis powers of Germany, Italy and Japan, as with any weapon, it was only as good as those operating it. Like all combatants in the war, Britain had its share of gifted warriors and tacticians, and many of them developed a formidable reputation for destroying the enemy. Here we look at the three highly skilled British military personnel the Axis forces learned to respect and even fear. Over the summer of 1940, the Royal Air Force was in a fight for the survival of Britain itself. The German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, had to destroy Britain's fighter forces in order to prevent them from interfering in the German invasion force crossing the Channel. As 1940 gave way to 1941, the RAF received the Spitfire Mark V, which introduced a more powerful engine and optional wing configurations allow it to be easily modified for different requirements. The Mark V was a match for the equivalent BF-109, but then in September 1941, as if out of the British pilot's nightmares, a new enemy plane appeared in the sky, the Fokker Wolf FW-190. The FW-190 outclassed the Mark V in almost every respect. Overnight, the Luftwaffe tipped the balance in the air in their favour as Mark V's began dropping from the sky, leading the British to dub the new German plane the Butcher Bird. British engineers quickly went to work on designing a Spitfire to counter the FW-190, but in the meantime, the RAF had to try to develop tactics to counter it, using the Spitfire Mark V's one advantage, its light-turning ability. One of those leading pilots into battle and learning how to fight the Butcher Bird was Johnny Johnson. Born on March 9th, 1915 in Leicestershire, Johnson may never have achieved his goal of becoming a fighter pilot had the threat of war not loomed on the horizon. A trained engineer and a keen sportsman, he injured his collarbone during a game of rugby that would complicate his entry into the RAF before he was finally accepted in August 1939. However, his collarbone injury continued to be a hindrance and he had to step away from flight training in order to have an operation to reset it, which meant he missed the Battle of Britain. Afterwards, he was able to complete his flight training and joined an operational squadron, number 616 squadron, and on January 15, 1941, he entered the fray when, as part of a flight that was covering a convoy, 
he attacked a German bomber. It's likely the bomber crashed from the damage it sustained and a distress signal from it was picked up by British radios. However, since Johnson had not seen it crash, he was credited with an enemy plane damaged rather than destroyed. He would achieve his first confirmed kill, a Messerschmitt BF-109E, while escorting bombers over northern France on June 26, 1941. He damaged another BF-109E a few days later and several more victories would follow in a spat of combat engagements through July until September. After a relative lull in his squadron's offensive operations over the winter period, in April 1942 they began again, by which time the Butcher Bird was now well entrenched in Luftwaffe service. On April 15, 1942, he managed to bring his guns to bear on an FW-190 but he only managed to damage it, and over the coming weeks, he witnessed firsthand the lethality of the new German plane. In his own words, we could outturn it, but you couldn't turn all day. As the number of 190s increased, so the depth of our penetrations decreased. They drove us back to the coast. While Johnson and his comrades were fighting to keep the 190 at bay, British engineers were finalizing a response. The Spitfire Mark VIII was powered by the new Rolls-Royce Merlin 60 series engine that was being used to power the mighty Avro Lancaster bomber and promised to redress the balance in performance with the FW-190. It featured a redesigned airframe to make full use of the new engine's performance. But this only delayed its introduction as factories had to be retooled to make it and the RAF needed them now. Therefore, the engine was fitted into a Mark V airframe with as little changes as possible to keep up production. The result was the Mark IX Spitfire, a stopgap design that gave the RAF the ability to fight the FW-190 on closer to equal terms. Johnson began flying Spitfire Mark IX when he took command of a Royal Canadian Air Force unit based at RAF Kenley and soon engaged the Butcher Bird in his new mount his own personal plane bearing his initials JEJ. Using his new position, he began altering the Canadian unit's tactics to better counter the German fighters, as they were increasingly involved in escorting US bombers over Europe on daylight raids. In the days leading up to and after D-Day, Johnson was in combat frequently. If proof was needed that the Butcher Bird had been blunted, Johnson shot down two FW-190s on June 27, 1944, and two again near Paris on August 21st, and this excludes his unit's overall victories against the Luftwaffe. In the new year, he finally said goodbye to his Mark IX, trading it in for a Mark XIV. In the waning months of the war, he found himself increasingly flying a desk rather than a Spitfire, although he still saw combat from time to time. In the final days of the war, he was part of a force of Spitfires that spotted four FW-190s. But when they went into attack, the German planes signaled their surrender, and instead Johnson's flight escorted them to an RAF airfield. By the end of the conflict, Johnson had 34 air-to-air -air victories to his name, of which 20 were FW-190s. This not only makes him the highest scoring Allied fighter pilot over the Western Front, but also the highest scoring RAF pilot against the FW-190 
that for those dark months in late 1941 to early 1942 seemed to have turned the tables on the RAF fighter force. Through his skill and leadership, he did more to blunt the butcher bird than any one man could. Johnson passed away on January 30th, 2001, at the age of 85. Having missed the opportunity to invade Britain in 1940, Hitler knew it was no longer practical to seriously consider attempting another invasion in the following summer or any thereafter, unless Britain's situation changed dramatically. Britain's defences were being significantly bolstered, while its army was now able to fight against German and Italian armies in North Africa and Greece. However, as a relatively small island nation, Britain relied heavily on the convoys carrying weapons and materials from its empire and the United States to keep itself in the fight. If these convoys were blocked, then Britain's ability to fight would be grounded to a halt. Britain still had a powerful navy of surface warships that Germany could not match, but the German navy did have an effective force of submarines known as U-boats. Britain's vulnerability to submarine blockades was dramatically demonstrated during the First World War. But by the time of the Second World War, few advances in tactics and technology to counter them had been developed. Thus, the German Navy turned the North Atlantic and Mediterranean into a bloodbath during the opening months of the war. In October 1940 alone, German U-boats sent over 406,000 tons of shipping to the bottom of the sea much of it British. During the interwar years, all the theories and experiments carried out by some of the more forward-thinking Royal Navy officers were quickly re-evaluated. Enter Commander Frederick Johnny Walker. Joining the Royal Navy as a cadet in 1909, by 1939 he was getting ready to hang up his uniform as his career was slowly dwindling down, having been passed over for promotion to the rank of captain. Despite his experience, he was not initially given a ship to command, and instead served on the staff of Vice Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsey during the Dunkirk evacuation. Meanwhile, convoy losses were rising, and the need for escort ships grew, as did the need for experienced commanders, and so in October 1941, he found himself in command of the newly established 36th Escort Group, comprising of nine small warships. Convoy escort duty was often a psychologically taxing affair. Barring the boredom of everyday routine, there was often poor weather to contend with, while the convoy could only sail as fast as the slowest ship. And then of course, there was the constant threat of the sudden appearance of a large underwater explosion, as another German torpedo claimed the victim, with the escort crews often being too slow to respond and catch the stealthy assailant to take revenge. However, little did the men of the 36th Escort Group know that in being handed Commander Walker, they were being handed an ace card against the U-boats, for he was not just another old-timer serving out his remaining years. During the interwar years, he had actually been an anti-submarine warfare instructor, and as such, he had a wealth of knowledge on the strengths and weaknesses of the British tactics. But more importantly, he had his own theories on how to improve them and now he had his chance to test them in action. In 
The 36th first few escort duties were relatively uneventful, but then in December 1941, the group under Walker found itself escorting convoy HG-76 from Gibraltar. The convoy's defensive firepower was enhanced thanks to the addition of a small escort carrier, HMS Audacity, itself converted from a captured German merchant ship. Almost immediately, the convoy was spotted by German intelligence and attacks were ordered against it. Over a period of eight days, the convoy was repeatedly attacked, but by the time it was over, the 36th had chalked up a tally of three U-boats sunk, including one that was rammed by Walker's ship, while a fourth was destroyed by aircraft from Audacity, which also downed two FW-200 maritime patrol planes. While Audacity itself was lost during the melee, compared to efforts during previous convoys, Walker had achieved a stunning victory, proving it was not just luck, his group destroyed another three U-boats on the return to Gibraltar. So what was key to Walker's success? Prior to HG-76, it was Royal Navy practice to keep the escorts as close to the convoys as possible to protect them. It was a logical approach, but Walker recognized this limited the escorts' ability to run down and destroy them, which of course would guarantee the convoy's protection. Thus he operated his escorts significantly further away from the convoy, with one U-boat sunk some 40 miles away. Walker would put three or more of his warships in a line to attack a U-boat, bombarding it with their array of anti-submarine weapons. This proved very effective as it restricted the U-boat from taking evasive action. Despite this success, Walker wasn't finished yet. He wanted to establish a small task group whose sole purpose was to go out and hunt Hitler's U-boats. The Admiralty was skeptical, but he found a supporter with Admiral Max Horton, himself a famed submariner from World War I. In the spring of 1942, Walker took command of six ships of the 2nd Support Group, one of the first of the new Royal Navy's units designed for this tasking. From the bridge of his flagship, HMS Starling, he trained the force so rigorously that they began to operate with the minimum of instructions from himself thus dramatically speeding up their response times. In June 1943, the second support group got the chance to cut its teeth in an incident that sounded like it came from the pages of a Tom Clancy novel. Sailing south of Iceland, it detected U-202 under the commander of Gunter Poser. The U-boat was returning from a clandestine mission to insert five German agents on the US east coast at 0030 hours on June 2nd, the U-boat was destroyed by depth charges fired from Walker's flagship. Over the coming year, Walker and his special unit would go on to sink more and more of the dreaded U-boats. And with newer weapons such as the Hedgehog and new acoustic detection devices, their lethality only increased. Sadly, Walker would not see the end of the war. He suffered a cerebral thrombosis on July 7th, 1944 and died two days later at the Naval Hospital in Seaforth, Merseyside, aged just 48. His doctors attributed his death to overwork and exhaustion, yet his personality and revolutionary tactics had left an indelible impression on the Royal Navy's anti-submarine force. Either directly or via a ship under his command, Walker was the most successful U-boat hunter of the war, 
and has been recognized as the man who did more to free the Atlantic of the U-boat menace than any other single officer. In a cruel irony, one of his sons was also killed during the war when his British submarine was sunk by German forces. Few military units can claim to have the prestige, respect, and generate as much fear in the enemy as the British Special Air Service, known universally as the SAS. Recognized as one of the top-tier Special Force units, the SAS have been involved in a variety of roles, ranging from long-range reconnaissance to counter-terrorism. But when they were formed in 1941, they were tasked with destroying German aircraft in North Africa before they had a chance to take off. These days, military commanders often take the skills special forces units possess for granted, so it's easy to forget that when the SAS was formed, there was little in the way of past experience to call upon, and the founding members had to essentially learn their trade on their own. The SAS itself was also disliked by many in the army's hierarchy who didn't like their independence, preferring their units operate within the disciplined chain of command. As such, the SAS attracted a certain kind of soldier. He had to be determined, creative, committed, a little self-centered, and of course tough. And these attributes summed up one Robert Paddy Maine. Born into a prosperous family of Scottish ancestry in Northern Ireland, Maine displayed considerable athletic prowess from an early age particularly when it concerned the rough and tumble game of rugby. During his school and university years, he also took up boxing, becoming the Irish University's heavyweight champion in 1936. Other sports he indulged in included cricket, golf and shooting. But while these were all attributes that hinted at a military career, while joining a reserve unit, he was actually studying to become a lawyer. This fact makes some of his more questionable exploits all the more startling. His capabilities on the rugby pitch saw him playing for both the Ireland team and the British Lions. He reportedly destroyed several players' hotel rooms when on tour, either as pranks or in retribution for some deed against him. During a tour of South Africa, he befriended a convicted criminal on a work detail near the stadium he was playing at and helped him escape, although the convict was subsequently recaptured. When the war broke out, he gained a commission in the Royal Artillery, manning anti-aircraft guns before transferring to the newly formed commandos. After Dunkirk, Prime Minister Winston Churchill knew Britain was not in a position to reinvade and capture territory in Europe on its own, so instead he formed special raiding units, the commandos, that could assault fortified enemy positions, wreaking as much havoc as possible before retracting back to British-held territory. Maine served with the number 11 commando and fought in the Syria and Lebanon campaigns, not against the Germans, but against the Vichy French, who it was feared would allow the Germans to use their territory to attack British Egypt. For his part in the campaign, Maine's name was mentioned in dispatches for his exploits during the Battle of the Litani River, after his senior officer was killed the battle was costly for the British, and Maine personally attributed this to what he described of the ineptitude of their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Geoffrey Keyes. 
It was long reported that Main and Keyes got into an argument over the matter in which Main struck Keyes. However, it's now generally agreed that that is untrue. However, Main's actions during the battle had caught the attention of one captain, David Sterling, who was in the process of creating a new raiding force dubbed AL Detachment, Special Air Service Brigade. Like Main, Sterling was not the most popular of soldiers when it came to his senior officers, but this only helped reinforce the new unit's individuality. The new unit had a specific role in mind, and that was to destroy the aircraft of the brutally affected Luftwaffe on the ground by raiding their airfields. Sterling and Maine had few supplies given to their new unit, even as they prepared to launch their first raid in support of a British offensive, and therefore they began operating them from other units with or without their permission. On November 16, 1941, 55 men of the SAS parachuted into action, but the raid was a disaster, with a third of them being killed for little gain. Main recognised that by parachuting in, they were alerting the Germans to their presence, guaranteeing an immediate gun battle, and making their work all the more difficult. He therefore concocted a plan for a second raid, which would instead use military jeeps to drive them into the airfield, where they could plant explosives and conduct sabotage. The suddenness of the attacks would add to the confusion, would have far less time to respond before the damage was done, by which point the SAS would be making good their escape. Sterling approved of the plan, and a raid using this method was carried out on the night of December 14, 1941, with Maine himself conducting a raid on the airfield of Wadi Tamit. If the SAS were to prove their existence to the Army High Command, then the raid had to be a success, and thanks to Maine's idea to use jeeps, it was. 60 German planes were destroyed at a cost of two men and three vehicles. Further raids were carried out in the coming months. Often the SAS men used German or Italian speakers to confuse guards as they drove onto airfields and into ports under the cover of darkness. Unfortunately, in January 1943, Sterling was undertaking a raid when he was captured by the Germans, who by this time had come to call him the Phantom Major. Sterling's capture sparked a major reorganisation of the SAS, as it was cut into two sections, the Special Raiding Squadron and the Special Boat Section, the latter of which became the forerunner of today's Special Boat Service, or SBS. As a major, Maine was next in line and given command of the Special Raiding Squadron. After fighting in North Africa, Maine and the SAS were now fighting in Sicily and Italy. Under his leadership, Maine continued Sterling's legacy, but impressed his own powerful personality on the force. The SAS were barely out of the cradle, yet they were already forging their fearsome reputation for courage and ingenuity in combating the enemy. Helped by Maine leading his men from the front, so he knew every detail of each raid to improve the next. The army leadership, who had been reluctant to embrace the SAS, were now bestowing honours on its members, and in particular, the man who led them. His citation concerning a raid in Sicily, after which a bar was added to his Distinguished Service Order Medal, highlighted the efficiency of an SAS raid under Maine. On 10th of July 1943, Major Maine carried out two successful operations, the first the capture of CD Battery, the outcome of which was vital to the safe landing of 13 Corps. 
By nightfall, the Special Raiding Squadron had captured three additional batteries, 450 prisoners, as well as killing 200 to 300 Italians. The second operation was to capture and hold the town of Augusta. The landing was carried out in daylight, a most hazardous combined operation. By the audacity displayed, the Italians were forced from their positions and masses of storage and equipment were saved from enemy demolition. In both these operations, it was Major Main's courage, determination and superb leadership which proved the key to success. He personally led his men from landing craft in the face of heavy machine gun fire. As the final months of the war ground down, Main was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and was soon one of the most highly decorated soldiers in the British Army. The accolades continued to come after the war, with the post-war French government awarding him the Legion of Honour and the Croix de Guerre. However, he was denied the British Army's highest honour, the Victoria Cross. In 1945, Maine was recommended for a VC after single-handedly rescuing a squadron of his troops that were trapped by heavy enemy fire near the town of Oldenburg in northwest Germany. Maine personally rescued the wounded among them, lifting them one by one into his jeep before returning fire and destroying the enemy gunners in a nearby farmhouse. However, despite the recommendation being signed by Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery himself, then commander of the Allied 21st Army Group, Maine instead received a fourth DSO, much to the fury of his men. It has long been speculated why the VC was denied, and many of his supporters argue that it was because of his bullish personality, his often disrespect for senior officers he didn't rate, and the fact that the SAS represented a dirtier kind of warfare. Regardless, when the war ended and he returned to civilian life, he left behind one of the world's most elite units. And as a famed SAS writer, Andy McNabb once said of him, he has always been and always will be a legend. If you look at the foundations of the Special Air Service, he was instrumental in that. We have the SOPs, standard operating procedures, and many of those are fundamental and must never change. Many of those arise from Paddy's operations during the war. He's just a byword for what goes on within the SAS, and he is part and parcel of what we are today. On the night of Tuesday, December 13, 1955, Maine was drinking with a friend in the town of Bangor, County Down, before making his way home in the early hours of the morning. He would never make it. At around 4am, he was found dead in his Riley Roadster on Mill Street, in his hometown of Newtonards, having collided with a farmer's vehicle. For a man who had shown such extraordinary courage against the enemy, it was a tragic end. So that's it for this video, the three most feared British soldiers during World War II. Now of course, there are a lot more than three, and we will do more videos like this in the future, covering all armies who fought during World War II, and their most feared members. Thank you for watching Wars of the World, and we will see you next week for another video.